this is such an important story and so unbelievable in a way that a chemical in our rubber ducky has the ability to lower our body's testosterone. And in a pregnant woman, do that in a way that can interfere with her son's development is kind of extraordinary. Welcome to On the Mission with Norwex Learning Network. I'm Amy Kadora. I created this show to help raise awareness about issues that can impact our quality of life, including harmful chemicals, plastic pollution, and sustainability. We'll also explore the simple changes that you can make to improve you, your families, and the planet's health. Shauna Swan is a PhD and one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists, and she's also a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. She's an award-winning scientist, and her work examines the impact of environmental exposures, including chemicals like phthalates and bisphenol A, and looking at them and their impact on men's and women's reproductive health and the neurodevelopment of children. Okay, so Dr. Swan, thank you so much for um, joining us today. Uh, we are so excited that you were able to take a little bit of time and talk with us about this um, pretty impactful study that you and uh, your research team undertook a number of years ago, and of course that resulted in the um, in the the book that was fairly recently um, released. And I found it an amazing uh, reading journey because we've been thinking about some of these topics, honestly also for quite some time. And um, we've been talking about fertility. It impacts a lot of our, um, our, our customers and they're very curious about, you know, what's, what might be happening that's impacting their fertility. So your book was very, um, very well-timed for us to take a look. So I, I'd love to be able to share with our listeners just that uh, kind of that background of what led you to to doing this study because you've got an extraordinary background but what what led you to to kind of through that process of putting some of these puzzle pieces together and initiating this study on sperm counts right so first thanks for having me on your podcast it's so nice to see you and talk to you again and um it's hard to know where to start, but I think if we're going to focus on the study that you mentioned, that is the 2017 study on sperm decline, and then how that led into the book, I'd have to say that my journey toward the 2017 paper actually started in the late 1990s, <clears throat> because that's when, um, in 1992, there's a very dramatic paper on sperm decline, right? So that was quite a while go. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> that paper was the first paper that said, hello, wake up. It's up, yeah. <laughs> count is falling. What and paper was that? I'm sorry. Daniel 1992. Yeah. It was a Danish paper, right? And it was the first author is Carlson. Gotcha. And um, so when I saw that paper, I was um, interested, I was concerned, and I was skeptical. Oh, that's interesting. So you were you were thinking, huh, that's interesting. How is that right? Is that accurate? Right. It seemed too much, too dramatic and too big a conclusion for what they were presenting in the article. Right. right. So um, I was actually on a committee at that time of the National Academy of Sciences. And the committee was asking, can chemicals in the environment that are endocrine disrupting, that is chemicals that are interfere with our body's hormones, mm -hmm. whether those chemicals are really something that scientists should worry about and that the public should worry about. So the charge to the committee was, is there an impact of endocrine disrupting chemicals on human health? So we got all these experts came together and um, the way these committees work are, is that you have sort of people on one side, you, you know, maybe industry, it takes one sort of general position and then consumers on one side, and then you have neutrals. Mm -hmm. And I was a neutral. 
because I had never even heard of endocrine disrupting chemicals, believe it or not. Many, not many people had at that time. Right. right. So I was completely open to whatever was going to come up and, and either way was fine with me. I was just interested, you know? Right. So when this sperm decline paper came along, the committee said, well, this is interesting. Should we consider this in our deliberations? And so I said, um, I'm skeptical, but I'll tell you what, I'll look into it. So I spent this next six months looking into it. And what that meant was that the 61 studies that had gone into that paper, uh, been used in that analysis um, from all over the world, by the way, <clears throat> I got them, retrieved them, read them, and abstracted from them anything that I thought might explain away the decline. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Right. So start from the idea of, let's assume it's the decline can be explained by anything but Exactly. 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 Yes. Yeah. And that's what we, 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 you know, epidemiologists and biostatisticians do. We say, can we make this go away? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can think about things that might make it go away. Um, right. I mean, so maybe the way you counted sperm changed over those 50 years. That's very plausible. That's a long time. And maybe the new methods just counted fewer sperm. You know, so measurement changes. Right. Um, then we also asked, well, maybe the men were different. So maybe the men coming in in recent years were actually having lower sperm count for a number of reasons. Maybe they were at infertility clinics or, right. you know. Right. So maybe they were older or maybe they, or maybe they were older or maybe they were heavier or maybe they were stressed or maybe they were right. so on and so forth. So to the extent that I could pull this out of those 61 studies. I did that and, and they became variables in a big model. And that model <clears throat> we ran, I did it with two colleagues. So we have some independent eyes on this. Right. And um, it was amazing to find out that after you did all this and six months of work, nothing changed. That's pretty phenomenal. It's in, phenomenal, in, in, right? In the scientific yeah. world. Right. That, that, yeah. It was it was the most robust finding I, I can wow. remember. So at that point, I was like, wow, something's going on here, right? Right. And that paper didn't say anything about cause of the decline, didn't say anything about environment or chemicals. But I just thought, well, okay, if this has gone down and probably what's most concerning is the possibility that the environment is influencing this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, suppose we could measure sperm count exactly the same way using very, very similar men in four environments. And okay. so I designed that study. And that was the, the study for future families that I conducted and looked at sperm count in Missouri and um, which is agricultural and right. Minnesota and Los Angeles and New York using very, very careful quality control to do things exactly the same way, recruiting men the same way from the same kind of populations, you know, really trying to keep it very clean. So the only differences were the environments, right? And so what, very surprisingly, what I found was that men who were living in central Missouri in the middle of the cornfields, in, in the middle of all this spraying of pesticides, had only half, half as many moving sperm as men living in Minneapolis. That's really huge, right? That's a, yeah, that's, yeah. Statistically right? significant. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then we went a little further, although we didn't have a lot of money to do that part of it, but we, we, we took a sample of men who had very good sperm counts in Missouri, counts, shape, motion, everything good. Mm -hmm. And then another group that had everything bad. <laughs> so, you know, abnormal sperm counts and shape and motion. And right. we looked at the pesticide levels in their urine, because we had collected urine. So, and in these two groups and the men with the bad semen quality had significantly higher levels of five pesticides. 
So this convinced me that the environment can play a role. That was the first time that I felt, yes, this is probably at least in part environmental, right? Mm -hmm. And I spent the next 20 years trying to figure that out. So that's how I got into this. In 2017, we said, leading up to that, we said, we should update this. I was talking to some colleagues at a meeting, a guy who was the lead author and I talked about this and they said, let's update that 1992 paper and see what's happening, given everything that's going on in the world. You know, what's happening to this decline? And that's what we did. And we spent two years, seven of us, working really hard to do this because it was a huge analysis, a huge analysis. We had 7,500 papers we had to go through to get to the end result. And, but what we found, again, really astoundingly, was that the decline that had been reported in 92, okay, so we're talking about 25 years plus earlier, right? Right. right. Was still there, <laughs> just about the same. And now we've done it with much more um, rigorous methods. Right. Right. And, and so we had to take it seriously. And that's what happened people did now take it very seriously what so i mean and that's pretty amazing to think about i was just thinking about the the part of the study where you were clearly looking at environment and then even more specifically exposures to a specific chemical a pesticide right. and its impact do you know of any other research like that that's been done? Because that was one of the, you know, I think we've certainly heard about Environmental Working Group and, and their cord blood study. We hear that a lot as, hey, this was an yeah. interesting, yeah. you know, interesting data point in the scheme of everything to say we we are being exposed and even in utero, we're being exposed to these, these chemicals, in particular EDCs. But do you know of any other types of research that has shown a similar type of, of chemical um, impact on, on the body? Many, 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 many studies. Mm. Many, I can't even, I, you know, we'd have to, I mean, my later studies, which we can talk about, um, yeah. were showing the impact of another class of chemicals, those chemicals that make plastic soft and flexible, the phthalates, phthalates on yeah. the development of the male. Other, chemi- other studies um, show how these chemicals affect um, our risk of obesity, our risk of just a huge number of outcomes that um, in brain development, behavior, language development, um, you name it. So there's an army of scientists that are studying this and getting pretty convincing evidence. But this, what was unique about the 2017 study was, which was not, by the way, about an environmental agent, right? It was right. said nothing about cause, just like the 92 right. said nothing about cause. Our 2017 set didn't say anything about cause. But what we said was, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Right. That's what that was. And it was like a wake up call. Mm-hmm. And, and now the next step is why? Right. And so I, we, we answered some of the why questions and some of them are still to be answered. I should add that that the majority of the information in that paper in 2017 was from Western countries. And people are confused about that. They say, does that mean that there's not exposure or not a problem in the rest of the world? Right. Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, that's not what that means. What that means is that these studies have been done and published in peer reviewed literature, mostly in Western countries. Okay, so that's we had to go with what we had in the literature. That's what we did, a literature review. So interestingly, after that, we're now at 2021. After the 2017 paper came out, if you look at the number of papers on semen quality and trends in semen quality from non-Western countries, it rose dramatically after that time. So the rest of the world sort of started chiming in and saying, We've got problems too. In Africa, there was an even stronger decline shown in China and so on. So it's not a problem just in Western countries. It's just that for that paper, which which we began in 2014, it's a long time ago, there weren't very many studies in non-Western countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's it's it's not a it's not a story about just 
North America, Europe, Australia, right. New Zealand, although that's where most of the data were for that analysis, right? Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually really interested and excited to hear about, you know, this study being almost, a, as you're saying, a wake up call. And what are the next series of studies going to be that are going to try to maybe isolate some of those chemicals or classes of chemicals and, and see if they can also prove that they contributed to right. sperm quality? Right. Yeah, right. Right. What, have there been any studies on egg quality? For, for women? Amy, the think about the male genitals and how the germ cells are produced, the sperm, and how easy it is to access them. Mm-hmm. And then you look, think of the female, her protected eggs in the mm-hmm. ovary. You cannot get an egg count without going to the hospital and mm-hmm. getting very invasive. Right. It's it's not easy. It's not right. cheap. It's not done unless there's a medical indication. So right. um, that's really a reality for women that it's just much harder to know. Wouldn't women like to know how fast their eggs are aging? Wouldn't that be yeah. useful to know yeah. how much longer they have, you know, right. to reproduce? Well, men can know what their sperm count is. Pretty they easy, can yeah. freeze their, you know, their sperm. Yeah. Women can freeze their eggs, too but it's more difficult, it's more expensive, and it's much less done. Mm-hmm. So there's a real imbalance here, a real disparity that, that mm-hmm. this is something that is much more easily addressed in men than in women. Right. But it's not to say it's not a problem in women. Right. Right, because the, the, um, the things we can measure in women easily, like miscarriage rate, that yep. has been growing up, um, f- female fertility has been going down, um, Age, you know, there's something called premature ovarian failure. That means basically early menopause. Mm-hmm. You, you run out of eggs sooner than you should. Right. That's going up um, and so on. So we have every indication that the problem is not just a problem in males. Right. And by the way, it's not just a problem in humans either, is it? Because we know many, many species that have been endangered or even 20 last week were just put on the list as extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is in large part due to reproductive failure and habitat failure, of course, also goes right. with that. but um, smaller litters failure to reproduce. So, so it's a planetary emergency, I think um, mm-hmm. that we are just coming up against now. It's, it's pretty extraordinary because you think about <clears throat> Reproductive health actually is not something that we we probably give too much thought to, right? Until we're ready to have babies, and then suddenly it comes to the forefront. Um, and and certainly, uh, you think about it even for that short period of time when you're in your reproductive years, but you don't think about it as as really a lifelong. Um, the health of your reproductive system, lifelong, is very important to us to to us personally. Um, but also to the species overall, right? It's interesting. Right. And you know what, Amy? The having poor reproductive health is a flag for poor overall health. Mm. That's something that most people don't know. But a man with a low sperm count actually can be expected to die at a younger age than a man with a good sperm count. I didn't know that. I know. Most people don't know that. They have higher rates of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, reproductive cancers, and other problems. And mm-hmm. we can talk about why that is, why that's plausibly why that is. It's very difficult to prove why that is. But um, And we know, again, much less about the women, but there's also, for example, um, having a healthy you know, a uh, number of pregnancies and so on protects you against reproductive cancers, right? right. That's one of the risk factors for right. lower breast cancer risk is that you've had a number of children nursed and so on. So you haven't cycled throughout your whole reproductive years. Um, and there are other endpoints associated with having poor reproductive health in women as well. So there this group of scientists, international scientists, called for considering reproductive health markers as the 
fifth vital sign. Just as we go to the doctor to talk about our cholesterol and our blood pressure, we could talk about our reproductive health. But it's, as you say, it's not talked about and it should be. No, it's no. kind of in the closet, isn't it? It is. It right? is. I don't know. It's, and it may be a, a, a North American kind of, we're, we're a little bit more um, maybe conservative in talking about those types of issues. But gosh, it sure seems like we need to make it more of the conversation, you know, certainly right. from a health standpoint, from a lifestyle right. standpoint. Right. Yeah. So endocrine disrupting chemicals, this is something that we, we've definitely been talking about within Norwex for a number of years, uh, particularly since the 2012 um, state of, uh, that was it uh, the um, United Nations um, right. report. Wonderful report, out. right. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so we shared a little bit of that and I think got people really thinking about it. Um, you know, could you just give us your quick overview of what they are and how, how how have we been exposed to them and how are we continuing to be exposed to them? We've talked about, uh, you know, again, I think people will know a little bit about them, but I think it's important for people to make sure they know what's going on with EDCs because they are so impactful. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, not only on reproductive health, but overall hormonal health, which impacts Absolutely. so many different areas and systems Absolutely. in the body. Absolutely. So um, it's it's sort of really discouraging that even today, if you go into a crowd of people who are educated, but not working in this field and you say, raise your hand if you've heard of endocrine disrupting chemicals and you get very few hands up, mm. right? So, so somehow this has not gone, you know, viral <laughs> as it right. should, right. given the risks that it poses, right? So what are these chemicals? Um, these are chemicals that act in a way that interferes with our body's natural hormones. So we, there are arguably close to 100 hormones in the body. We don't even know all of them, I think. But, but the hormones are the chemical messengers that tell one part of the body, uh, go from one part of the body to the other, convey the signal that certain action should be taking place, mm-hmm. right? So transmits information. And you can imagine that if you mess with that, the wrong information could be sent, it could be sent late, it could send to the wrong place mm-hmm. um, and it could lead to the wrong endpoint. So um, the area that I've worked in uh, most are the chemicals that can interfere with the steroid hormones, sex hormones, and particularly testosterone and estrogen, right? And I think women understand this a lot because of their menstrual cycles. They know that there's fluctuation in hormones and men are very aware of testosterone because they really need it and want it for their, you know, maleness and they're feeling good about themselves. Right. Right. So people are pretty aware of testosterone and estrogen, progesterone. Um, What they're not aware of is that um, there are chemicals out there in a plastic bottle or in your personal care products or in your clothing that can trick your body into thinking that it's gotten maybe all the testosterone it needs so it doesn't need to make any or maybe you know it's this chemical will increase your estrogen which can be related to lots of things including you know body mass index and breast cancer risk and things like that so right. these are chemicals that we I like to think of them as hormone hijackers they kind of sneak in under the radar we don't know they're there. You don't know what's in your body. And I don't know what's in my body right now. But believe right. me, there are probably re- easily 100 of them measurable right now in our body. And and we don't know where they came from, but they know they're in us. And we know they're active, mm-hmm. right? So they come in and they might interfere with the production of a hormone, the transport of a hormone, and, and so on. Um, so uh, where are they? Where do they come from? So everywhere. I mean, that's not a very satisfactory answer. So you kind of have to go class by class. So the phthalates, which is my favorite class of chemicals because it's the one I've studied. Everyone's always has a favorite. So, you know. so <clears throat> these chemicals make plastic soft and flexible, right? So a squishy water bottle, a squishy rubber duck, a shower curtain, rubber, rubber hose, the rubber hose, yeah, PVC, 
anything with PVC, big component of PVC, plastic. Um, and the thing is that they're not chemically hooked into the plastic. They leave it quickly. Under heat, particularly, they leave it faster when environment is warm. Would that, right. that include microwave? Like microwave? Yeah, microwave is a very bad thing to do with soft plastic in the neighborhood of food because right. then it hops out of the plastic container and goes right into the food and then right into us. And then it can do its damage. Right. right? So right. you're right. Food, uh, storage containers, heating containers. Um, I always say to people, and we say that in our book, Countdown, Go into your kitchen with a big plastic bag and fill it up with all the plastic you can find. Right. And what do you replace it with? You can replace it with glass. Glass is inert. You can replace it with metal. You can replace it. Silicon is actually not bad. Mm -hmm. You can replace it with ceramic. Um, and But like you said, microwave is absolutely the worst. You do not want to heat in Plastic. And there are actually little packets of food that you can buy that you're supposed to heat up in the packet, right? Have you seen those? I and have, like vegetables, yes. like steam yes. or vegetables. Yes. Steam vegetables. No. Don't do it in that no. plastic, please. <laughs> so. Well, it's like those conveniences. We've we've become um, a culture really of convenience, and mm -hmm. and those conveniences. Uh, I'm finding myself questioning them more and more. And, and honestly, it seems like getting, being more convenient oriented has led to some amazing discoveries, but also those exposures to chemicals are about maybe mm, moving away from the conveniences and realizing that there's a cost to those and it's a pretty hefty cost to our health and it's worth it, you know, instead of using plastic, which is nice and lightweight and, you know, it, it's easy to carry just use some, some glass containers, you know? Right. Right. And maybe we should mention here that not everyone may be as able to make those changes. So mm -hmm. first of all, they might not be aware of the problem. If they, you know, don't right. go in circles That's where true. this is discussed, they may not have access to better products. So right. one of the things I recommend is people eat unprocessed food whenever mm -hmm. they can. Um, we can talk about why, but um, basically processing is often through plastic. So you put oh. through a plastic tube, like a right. like spaghetti sauce or <laughs> soup or right. whatever. And then it's in a can. It's going to be a can lined with another bad chemical, bisphenol A or F or S, a, a bisphenol. Um, right. So these are convenience foods that make our life easier, apparently, but right. may actually be making it worse. Right. So if you can't afford to buy unprocessed food, or maybe there isn't fresh fruit within a couple of miles of you, you're in a food desert, um, then, you know, you're out of luck. Right. So, right. so poorer people or people who are less educated, who are less not living in an urban environment, for example, have a hard time with these messages because they, I, you know, I can say, you know, eat unprocessed food and they go, right. how do I do that? You know, I'd love I, to, but yeah. Right? Right. right. <laughs> so, so it ends up actually disproportionately affecting those that are, um, you know, lower income who, it, it, you know, it, and that's 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 probably a whole nother discussion in and of right. itself, to be honest. Right. But it's um, you're right. It, it definitely is going to impact them because um, and but and but I love what you're saying about processed food, because I hadn't even taken it to that level in my own head that, hey, if you you know, if um we avoid cans in the house, right? We're down to dried beans, believe it or not, which takes planning. I'm not going to lie. It takes some planning, but yes. you've got an Instapot right now. Right, right, too. Right. So, you you know, a, a little bit of planning and we can manage through and really try to not go to zero. I do want to make sure we're, you know, it's, it's very hard to live, you know, completely unprocessed. But if 75% of the time, 80% of the time you are, leading and eat, excuse me, eating in an unprocessed way, you're going to have a dramatic impact actually in a number of different areas, a number of different health markers. So um, to your point, taking some little steps and saying, what can I do? What can I afford to do? Right. Um, what makes the most sense in my lifestyle? Those are the changes that can, that truly, I think can make a big difference for people. That's right. 
totally agree. I like that message. Do what you can. Don't yeah. let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. What is it? What is the saying? Perfection. Maybe it is perfection is the enemy of. Yeah, that's the phrase that I know. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. I like that one. Okay. So the endocrine disruption, fantastic um, overview of, of, of EDCs as we are uh, talking to people about them. What about AGD? And that being this reproductive marker for health and endocrine disruption. Um, is this measured in every infant or should it be measured in every infant? What, what's the, what, what's, what's going on I mean, with AGD? If you could help me get it measured in every infant, I would be <laughs> eternally grateful to you. I think this is one of the most important measures that we could take on our newborns. Uh, and it is not measured routinely. And here's the, amazing thing about it. It is a measure, a reflection, if you will, directly of how much testosterone that child or an infant saw in the womb, especially at a certain period of development. So, So here's the story. Here's this little organism, hardly formed, six, seven weeks old, in the womb. And if you were to look at the genitals, they're very, it's just a ridge. There's nothing, no organs there. Right. It's a ridge. Okay. Same in male and female. Looks the same. Right. Then at a critical time, which we think is around eight weeks, but we know specifically in rats, because we can actually pinpoint it, but humans, it's early first trimester. Um, testosterone starts being produced. And then in the male, it gets pretty high. In females, it stays low. In the male, it starts the differentiation, the the differences between males and females start to become evident, Uh, right? uh So, you know, eventually we're going to end up with that male genitals that we all know, the female genitals we all know, but they all start out the same. Right. Okay. And the way you get the male gets to his typical development mm-hmm. is with testosterone. If that testosterone isn't there at the right time, and it's very delicate, it's like a ballet that's choreographed, has mm-hmm. to be there at the right time, then it's not going to proceed in the right direction. It's not going to be completely masculinized. So then what happens? So then the boy might have undescended testicles. So that's one part of the things that happens is the testicles descend. Well, maybe that'll be interfered with. Maybe the size of the genitals will be different, right? Mm-hmm. And one measure of that is this anogenital distance. So when he goes all the way to full masculinity, his anogenital distance, this measure of, you might think of it as genital size, mm-hmm. is actually 50 to 100% bigger in the male than the female. It's just, there's a lot more stuff in there. Right? It's just, right, it's right. Just and, and in case there wasn't enough testosterone, then it won't get that big. And what could cause that? Phthalates. Mm. Why? Because phthalates lower testosterone. So this is, this is such an important story and so unbelievable in a way that a chemical in our, you know, rubber ducky has the ability to lower our body's testosterone. And in a pregnant woman, do that in a way that can interfere with her son's development is kind of extraordinary. Absolutely. We showed that that's been shown in animal studies repeatedly. We've shown it in human studies repeatedly. And it's pretty well accepted. It's called the phthalate syndrome. Okay. So, I should mention that if you looked at a boy with a phthalate syndrome and you just looked at him, nice boy, you wouldn't see anything particularly strange. Mm-hmm. It's not like being missing limbs or, you know, yeah, it's nothing yes. gross, nothing. It's very subtle. It's on the population level that you can really measure this. But if you look at a male adult, we did it in college students measure their AGD, get a sperm count, and guess what? When the AGD is short, less masculine, more toward the feminine side, his sperm count is low. 
So the longer the AGD, the higher the sperm count. Hmm. And his chance of having a child are also less if it's short. There's other things that can happen. You can all, he'll be at a higher risk of testicular cancer and so on and so forth. But um, it's, it's, it's a marker of something going wrong in utero. Mm-hmm. And what went wrong was there wasn't enough testosterone. Now, on the female side, I just want to mention the female side because we don't talk about that as yeah. much. But on the female side, the female is not looking for testosterone to develop. She's going to develop her genitals just fine without it. If there's too much testosterone, what do you think happens? More, probably more masculine. Yeah. And that's what we saw. So a woman who has PCOS has excess testosterone. That's one of the conditions, you know, that's one of marker PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's the mom. She's pregnant. She has PCOS. She makes more testosterone. Her female offspring is exposed to more testosterone. And guess what? She has a longer than expected phenogenal distance. It's really extraordinary. It huh. just plays out like, <laughs> like you would expect it to. Um, so it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Is there any sort of transgenerational impact with AGD that that just kind of that is a great great question Amy and I don't know because you know what I was the first person to do this and I did it published this in 2005 up until then it hadn't this measure had never been used in a human toxicology study it hardly (laughs) been used in humans at all wow so they used it in animals for a long time Mm -hmm. and you could ask in animals is there a transgenerational effect but I don't know I don't think that's been done. And that's a great, great question. I keep hoping that the babies that we measured AGD on at birth, that we can find them again when they're in their 20s. But what we do know is that when you're born with a short AGD, the chances are very good it's going to stay short your whole life. Now, whether that is passed on to your child, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you think, you know, as you're going through all of this research, this dramatic decline in, in sperm count, what does it mean for us globally? Because it is a global issue, but if we stay on this current trajectory, what does that mean for us as a civilization? That's the big question, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not, I don't have my crystal ball right here. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, my predictive powers are limited. But I can say that the sperm count now, or when we published it in tw- 2017, the mean in the Western countries was very low. It was 47 million sperm per milliliter. That sounds like a huge amount, right? And it is a huge amount. But here's the problem. Once you get close to 40, you are entering the subfertile zone, mm. entering the point at which it becomes harder and harder to conceive a pregnancy. It takes mm-hmm. longer. Okay. And that's been shown a long time ago. So even though there are a lot of sperm there and people say, and I've had critics say that, well, what's, why do you care? There's many, many millions of sperm. Why do you care if this goes low? Well, the fact is they have to be of the right shape. They have to be swimming the right way. They have to make it to the egg. You need a lot of them to get the job done. And when this drops below 40, we start to see it get, takes longer and longer to get pregnant. So now we're at 47 back in 2011, 10 years later, we're not sure where we are. Hope to find that out soon. Mm -hmm. Oh, you do. Are you actively looking at counting and doing another follow-up then? I actually, let's just say maybe. That's okay. all I want to say right now. <laughs> but um, um, there, you know, this is sort of what on everybody's lips, this question, like, where, where is it going? Where I think what I want to point out is that this decline, which has been pretty straight line mm. so far, because right. we looked for curvature, we didn't see curvature, right? We saw just straight line. That can't go on forever. Right. Right? Because we can't hit zero. We can't have negative sperm. 
But you right. can get to a point where it's so low that it's exactly there's, exactly. there's no pregnancy that's going to happen. So the question is, is it going to get so low that we can't really function or is it going to level off or is it going to actually get better? Right. And that really depends on us, I think, in terms of what we do, what we let into our bodies, the bodies of pregnant women. I think we have as a society, world society, uh, an obligation to turn this curve around, to make it go up. But to do that, we have to keep these chemicals out of our bodies. So that's, you know, not only do we have this incredible challenge globally in terms of climate, we have this incredible challenge in terms of our fertility. And it's going to take, you know, uh, you know, a moonshot, but I think we can Uh do it. We do moonshots. So, you know, we produce vaccines in unprecedented time. We can, you know, and, and in the laboratory, Pat Hunt has shown that in three generations, we can stop this. We can turn this around. Three generations. So tell me that a little bit about that. So Pat showed that if you take a rat, she used mice, excuse me, take a mouse who's been exposed to an endocrine disrupting chemical and has low reproductive function of various kinds, fertility, sperm count, and so on. And then you keep his offspring's environment clean of any endocrine disruption. And then the offspring of that offspring, clean of any endocrine disruption. You do that for three generations and you restore total reproductive function. Interesting. So that's a wonderful story. The only problem is it takes quite a long time. That's three generations, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. for rats. How do we speed that up, you know? <laughs> we have to speed that up. But the that fact out. that it is reversible should be encouraging to people. I, I totally agree. It, it's right. a, it's it's a move in the right direction, and somebody's right. going to grab hold of that and figure out and research more and more to say, okay, how to speed that up, right? We can, right. yeah, we can do this yeah. in a year. I'm making it up. Let's let's <laughs> get done in a year for everybody. So what you know, this you, that's a perfect lead in, and and we we started talking a little bit about it. But if if you were going to identify, you know, three to five things that. Um, people can do to try to bring their burden of endocrine disrupting chemicals down as much as possible. Are, are there three or five that you focus on um, even for yourself to say, yeah, this is kind of, these are kind of my non-negotiables. I really try to push hard on these. Well, maybe because I focus on phthalates, I, I, I think most about food, honestly, because um Food is the primary source of our phthalate exposure and much most of our bisphenol exposure. And um, then there's the PFAS chemicals, which are, for example, in Teflon yes. um, and in our pizza boxes. So we're getting a lot of this stuff through our food. So I would say if I had to focus on one thing, I would start on food. Um, I'm very concerned about something that we're just learning about and don't know a lot about, and that's the microplastics. The microplastics, the nanoplastics, which are the tiny, tiny pellets that come off our tires on the road and come off our clothing and come off everything in our bodies, everything we're exposed to. And we know now we can measure these in all kinds of tissues that we never thought you'd see plastic, like the placenta, placental tissue, meconium, stool samples, stool samples of newborns. That's kind of a shock, isn't it? It is. Wow. So what we don't know yet um, is what these do. So microplastics have probably a physical, um, you know, they have a problem through their physical presence, Mm -hmm. like um, fibers of asbestos. Um, They're actually physically, you know, interfering with the body. They also can absorb um, chemicals and they may possibly interfere with nutrition. Um, so it's it's a new world now since people have started, you know, thinking about the implications of microplastics. But I think this is going to be very big on the radar um, for the next while as we figure right. this out. Um, and of course, the more plastic we have in the environment, the more microplastic we have. Exactly. So yes, and and I, I we we definitely. 
Um, I think you and I discussed it earlier, you know, trying to reduce our use of plastic. I don't think we'll ever eliminate it. There are some really good uses of plastic. You know, um, they've it's helped us in many different areas, many different industries. But again, back to conveniences, right? So bottled water is the ultimate convenience. But if we understand the impact that the plastic has on us, even chemically, um, certainly the environment is a byproduct of that because we're so interconnected with the environment. Right. However right. we go, the environment goes, right? right? We're not, we cannot separate, separate. from that, fact, no. right? No. So, um, and that's something we've believed in and, and talked about for a lot. Hey, start with your own home because if we can get that as healthy as we can make it, um, the environment will will benefit from that right. as a, a kind of as a side project. So Amy, I just I want to mention smell. Smell. <laughs> yeah, because fragrance. Anything oh, that's, yes. so so food, you think how do you get that? You ingest it, right? Mm-hmm. Take it in your mouth. Okay, that, so that's one route of exposure. But there's also inhalation. So right. chemicals in dust, including microplastics, by the way. Um, hairspray nail polish, you can think a lot of things that we get in through breathing, right? Right. So um, that's really important. And smell, anything that has a fragrance will contain high levels of phthalates and phenols. So that air freshener that you hang in your car, the plug-in in the wall, Mm -hmm. perfumes, perfume soap, laundry detergent, I try to avoid anything with smell. I had a friend come over. She was smelling spice, <laughs> something she'd put on. And I said, you know, I'm actually allergic to that. Do you mind not using that next time you come? Well, I, I actually not allergic, I don't think. But I, <laughs> I right. react negatively. You know, right. I think it's an allergy. Well, how many people get headaches? You know, if you get into a, in fact, I was at a doctor's office and they had a plug-in, oh. right? And it was on high. And when they weren't looking, I unplugged it because <laughs> I was, I was like, I'm getting a headache. I can't sit in this waiting room with this right. incredibly strong fragrance. And yes, it's nice, but it's yeah. giving me a really bad headache. So yeah, yeah. I don't know how long till they yeah. figure it out. So I, that's another thing I, you know, food, smell, water oh, is really important. Yes. Um, and there's various things you can do with your water. We're not going to spend the time to talk about it now. Personally, I distill my water using a tabletop distiller, but that's pretty easy, cheap. Don't have to buy anything. Don't have to use any plastic bottles at all. We have a glass pitcher. We fill it up with a distilled water and good to go. So is there any plastic in your distiller or is it? Nope. It's hard to find water filtration that does not use plastic tubing is is usually what it is, right? Right. And I'm like, well, I don't want my water going through that. I'm trying to. Do you know, think about, Milk, we're changing the subject now, but we were on. Oh, seeing. yeah. So, how do you think a cow is milked? Mm. Right? So, right. there was this, a very nice, simple study in um, Eastern Europe um, which showed that when the cow was milked the old fashioned way by hand mm-hmm. and was milked with a milking machine which has plastic tubing, the levels of phthalates were much higher in the cow that was milked by the milking machine. So any commercial milk, any commercial milk. Even organic. Even organic. Right. It's going to continue. So it's, I mean, I'm working with friends who are working in the healthcare setting, in the hospitals, Mm -hmm. about IV bags, think of dialysis, think of the NICU in the newborn nursery. I mean, the newborn, the newborn right. in the NICU, newborn nursery, they're all getting it. They're all getting phthalates through the plastic tubing um, and many, many other ways. And people are trying to clean up the hospital environment. That's mm-hmm. not going to be a concern for everybody, but there are sort of everyday concerns like that. For example, if you have sleep apnea, you know, right. sleep apnea is full of, of, of tubing. So I would think if I had one word of advice, it would be, Pay attention as you go through your daily life. Where do you contact things that might contain these chemicals? Mm-hmm. And you'll start to see them. They won't be labeled by and large, but right. you can ask about them. You can Google about them if you're not clear. And with some luck, you'll begin able to find out what you're being exposed to. 
Well, and to leave everybody with this, I mean, phthalates is just one class exactly. of chemicals. Exactly. And, and we, we often talk about this, that there is a cocktail. There's a chemical cocktail that we're being exposed to on a daily basis. And we have no idea how the cocktail blending, what are the impacts? Are they exponentially greater? Are they less? Uh, you know, uh, nobody has any idea. We have some idea. Oh, we do. Wait, okay. Yeah. I stand corrected. We have some idea that actually the the whole is worse than the sum of its parts. Um, and and there's a very nice study on rats again, and uh, was exposure to, I think it was seven phthalates. Um, each of them at extremely low, quote, safe doses. Right. And when they were exposed to all seven of them, these rats were born with general defects. Whereas with them individually, there was no problem. Mm. And I think that's what's happening to us. Right. It's compounding. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, and before I leave, I just want to put in a plug for my book. Please do. Please do. Yes. Yes, of course. So that's my book, Countdown, wrote it with Stacey Colino, wonderful science writer, and how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race. So Sums it up. Sums it up very nicely. <laughs> and it's on Amazon, right? They can get it on Amazon. Any, any of your booksellers. Any of them. Okay. And I will say, I've read it. I know um, uh, we have another Amy on the team, Amy Bacchus, and she's also read it. It is a fantastic read. It's not very long, but it's very powerful in terms of the information it has on it. Can I, so I can definitely second the reading of it. Thank you. And even funny sometimes, right? It was. was. (laughs) We appreciate humor all the time. Dr. Swan, this has been absolutely fascinating and I could take up way more of your time just talking about these topics. So I want to thank you for coming on and and discussing these uh, with us. And um, we'd love to have another discussion with you uh, down the road when when it works for your schedule, because it's just fascinating. And the more people that we can talk to about these issues and bring that awareness, the better chance we have at kind of turning the big freighter, you know, of, of fertility challenges, kind of turning it around and, and maybe riding that ship. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share with friends and family and don't forget to follow and subscribe.